You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. I'm going to recap here this morning. I cannot do any of the recaps justice. You got to get on and you got to listen um, to these series of sermons because it's ex- I hope it's explaining a lot to you about what's going on in our country. And so we've been in this series of messages and I've been kind of basing this off of um, a very recent book uh, by Rabbi Christian author Jonathan Kahn. The name of the book is called um, The Return of the Gods. I know uh, many of you have gotten this book. You're kind of reading through that. You know, try not to get too far ahead of me, uh, but you know, uh, I'm glad you're getting into it because there's a lot of nuances. There's just a lot of things that he talks about in the book. He goes into a little bit more depths on certain things. I just don't have the time uh, to do. So um, for those of you that maybe are new to the series, or um, I'm going to do a recap. I apologize to those of you that, that are keeping up with me here. You've been here. You're listening to it online. The recap is just important, so I'm able to bring everybody in the room together. We're all on the same page. Again, this morning, uh, it, with every message, I just pray against, I come against the spirit of offense. Jesus said that his word would be a stumbling block. And it's a stumbling block at various places, or it has the potential to be a stumbling block to every one of us at various places. And where the, where the word becomes the greatest stumbling block, where we tend to take the greatest offense to the word of God, is in areas where the word of God identifies our behavior, our actions as sinful. We don't like that. And our reaction to that sometimes is we want to take offense, we want to push back against that, and we want to just refuse to hear the word of God. I'm, I'm just asking you this morning, come against that. Push against that this morning. Just say to yourself, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come under uh, or into offense this morning. I'm going to allow the word of God to do what the word of God needs to do, and that is to plant seeds uh, of hope, of eternal life, of truth, of freedom uh, into my heart this morning. So, um, let me just kind of recap where we've been. We've kind of been using two very foundational verses. The first one comes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. And here Moses says, they, meaning the nation of Israel, they sacrificed to Shadem. And again, we've identified those are demons. Not to God, not to Elohim, not to Jehovah, not to the God of the Bible. He says, but to gods they did not know to new gods that had come that their forefathers did not fear. Now the second verse we've been using is Psalm 106, verse 36 through 37. Here again is David is writing. He says, they being the nation of Israel served idols, which became a snare to them. Anytime you're worshiping idols, they will eventually at some point become a snare to you. Just as they did to the nation of Israel, they will be to us as well. So they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. I'll say more about that in a moment. Now again, both of these scriptures, Moses, David, they're kind of referring to the history of the nation of Israel. Moses is again speaking there in Deuteronomy. David is writing in Psalms. And both of them are are looking back on and they're recounting times in the history of the nation of Israel where they went from serving and worshiping the one true God alone to eventually, gradually, slowly moving toward worshiping what Moses says are are kind of gods they did not know, new gods, gods that their forefathers did not fear. David kind of goes even further and says that these sacrifices at times eventually led to people sacrificing their sons and daughters to demons. Again, there's not a lot that we know about that Hebrew word shadem because it only appears twice in Scripture in Deuteronomy and then again in Psalm, both of those I just read to you. 
Bible scholars believe that, that the Shadem, it may refer to those demons that were kind of uh, the most evil, the most malevolent, the most wicked. They were kind of the highest of the high demons in the demonic realm. The Shadem may represent some of the darkest, the most evil, most powerful. Uh, these may be some of the demons that are kind of being referenced there by Moses um, and David. And these were these demons that the nation of Israel would eventually gradually slowly begin to turn to and worship and serve them. And one of the things you discover as you kind of read through the history of the uh, nation of Israel there in the Old Testament is that there were just kind of these multiple repeated cycles where they would be solely focused on worshiping and serving Jehovah, the God of the Bible, and then gradually they would just begin to kind of turn away and they would begin to worship uh, pagan gods. And then they would repent of that and then they would come back and they would be worshiping and serving God alone and then eventually they would begin to turn and serve other gods. And it wasn't just in the Old Testament. The demonic realm was very much influencing, um, you know, the, the, the times of Jesus's ministry. We see that in the, in the temptation. You know, he's, he's, uh, Jesus faces the devil uh, there. And we see the demonic realm also in the New Testament church there in the book of Acts. So, and, and Jesus often dealt with, he confronted, and he just completely defeated the demonic realm throughout his three plus years of ministry on earth. And often Jesus would talk about the demonic realm and in talking about it, he would begin to educate us on ways that the demonic realm operated. And one of those instances we've been looking at there in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 43. And here's what Jesus says. And again, he's, he's teaching us something about how the demonic realm operates. When an unclean spirit, and again, we know that that's a demon, goes out of a man, the unclean spirit, that demon, it goes into what we call the dry places seeking rest. Again, oftentimes they're seeking, again, another place that they can inhabit, a place that they can dwell. And it says, and finds none. Then the unclean spirit, that demon says, I will return to my house, the man that they were previously dwelling in, he says, I'm going to go and return to my house from which I came. And when the unclean spirit demon comes, he finds it empty, swept, and clean. Then this demon, Jesus says, goes and he finds and brings with him seven other unclean spirits, demons, that are more wicked than himself. Now, that's, that's you got to see that. You got to understand. He's not just getting a peer-to-peer. -peer. He's getting... He's getting demonic spirits that are more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the state of that man is worse than the first. Now, again, we've, we've said, you know, Jesus is talking about an individual man here, but you've got to also go on to see what he says in the next verse, in verse 45. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Now he's gone from talking about an individual man to an entire generation. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he's saying what is true of an individual man when it comes to the demonic realm will be true of a city, a state, a nation, a generation when it comes to the way the demonic realm operates. Jesus is telling us that what happened there to the nation of Israel back there in the Old Testament, in the ways that the nation was influenced and infiltrated by the demonic realm, he said that will continue to happen in this wicked generation and in every wicked generation going forward until the return of Jesus. What happened to the nation of Israel when it came to the demonic realm, Jesus said, it is possible in every generation. Heads up, right? One of the unique aspects of Jesus' ministry is how he used the word of God in dealing with and defeating the demonic realm. Now, he, he does that to demonstrate how powerful and effective the word of God is in dealing with defeating and dismantling 
the demonic realm. The same is true of the New Testament church, the church in Acts. They understood the preaching of the, the word of God, the, the preaching teaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They understood that that resulted in the greatest ongoing mass exorcism in all of world history. Whenever and wherever the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was preached, it resulted in part in the toppling and the defeat of every demonic stronghold it encountered. And so with this foundation, Rabbi Khan, he kind of asked a couple of questions. Three, I think, that are really pertinent questions that we have focused on here these last few weeks. First, the question he asked is, is there discernible, observable, repeated patterns that occurred when the nation of Israel would go from worshiping and serving the one true God to gradually, eventually, subtly, slowly moving their way towards serving and worshiping other pagan gods that were demons. And the, we've, we've discovered the answer to that question is yes. Scripture shows, it identifies observable, repeated patterns. Second question is, he says, are there certain demonic spirits or entities that are consistently found to be influencing and infiltrating the nation of Israel? Are there specific spirits that are, that are coming and, and taking them and moving them away from worshiping the one true God to worshiping demonic spirits? Third, is it possible for those same pagan gods, those demonic spirits, the Shaddam, those wicked, those malevolent, those evil demons that led Israel astray, could those same demons, entities, be at work in America today? And if so, what would that look like? Are there similarities in how they manifested in Israel to how they may be manifesting in America today, and how might that happen? If those same demonic spirits that led Israel astray were operating in the American culture today, what would that look like? And the purpose of this series is really to look at and address those questions. So, two weeks ago we looked at the first demonic spirit because again Rabbi Khan identified what he called three of the main demonic spirits that were at work in Israel back in the Old Testament, and he says, and he calls them the dark trinity. Now, we, we know that the, the, the devil has nothing original. He's a copycat. So, you know, as we have the trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the, the devil wants to kind of come and replicate that, so it would make sense that he kind of wants to create his own, what we would call dark trinity. And so, Rabbi Khan has identified three of these demonic spirits, these entities, and he calls them the dark trinity. And we discovered that the first one was a spirit by the name of Baal. And Rabbi Khan identifies Baal by the name the possessor. And the possessor, Baal, was always, always, always the first visible demonic spirit that appeared and would begin that initial work of leading the nation of Israel astray. Baal was the initial, he was the first on the scene, uh, he was the, the primary culprit. Okay, so there, he's the first one on the scene and he would always use the same first step. So the first person there's Baal, the first step that he would always, always take in leading the nation of Israel astray was he would begin to separate the people of God from the word of God. That was his tactic. That's the first thing. That was his first assault was to always separate the people of God from the word of God. And when he can do that, he, he, he believed his chances were very, very good that the Israelites could easily, gradually, subtly be led away from the word of God uh, and worshiping God to worshiping and serving 
pagan gods. And we saw how the possessor kind of did the same thing here in America beginning in the early 1960s when the Supreme Court kind of came out and made a decision uh, representing America saying, you're not gonna be allowed to uh, pray in public schools. You're not gonna be allowed to read the word of God. You're not gonna be allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. What's happening? He's beginning to separate the people of God from the word of God. Last Sunday, we looked at the uh, second um, demonic spirit Rabbi Khan identified, and he called her the enchantress because it is a she, uh, it is a, a female demonic spirit. Uh, the Bible calls her Ashtaroth. She goes by many uh, names in, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, uh, Ishtar, I, uh, Ayana, um, Venus, Aphrodite, she goes by many names, but the Bible identifies this particular demonic spirit as Ashtaroth. And again, remember what Jesus said there in Matthew 12, when a demonic spirit returns to a place he once possessed and he finds that swept, clean, and empty, it says he goes and finds seven other demons more evil than himself and they enter back into that place that they once possessed, making it worse than the first. The Enchantress Astroth is certainly that. And I showed you scriptures last week through Judges, um, where you would find Baal, and then all of a sudden, here is Ashtaroth. So again, I just encourage you to get online um, and listen to that message. Now, this demonic spirit was so prominent um, that, you know, many in the ancient Middle East had given her the name Queen of Heaven. This is how important, this is how big she was uh, in the demonic realm. She's also be known as the goddess of sexuality as well as the goddess of war and destruction. And we kind of talked about how one of those kind of represents femininity, the war destruction represents masculinity and how she's kind of taken all of that and she's, she's kind of taken uh, human nature, sexual identity, gender, and she's kind of just mixed mixed it all up, and we see that happening in our culture today. So we talked about her ability to lead the nations astray through sorcery. She's a sorceress, okay? Um, she confuses people, their, their humanity, their gender, their sexuality, their identity, um, and, and it confuses people that are women into believing that they're men, men into believing that they're women. Um, and this demonic confusion would run so deep as to leading people, again, many of them children, to mutilating their bodies through gender reassignment surgeries. We talked about that last week, how that's manifesting in our culture today. And that's the thing, we, we see scriptures, they sacrifice their sons to, and daughters to demons, and sometimes we sit here and we judge them. We say, how, how can a culture be so fallen? My friends, we are just as fallen, if not more so. We're doing what they did. It may look different, but it's the same result. We see this demonic confusion playing out in drag queen shows. They're being presented now at public schools, public libraries, other events, and they're being billed as family-friendly events. This is how deep, this is how, uh, this is how um, just confused this demonic spirit, Ashtaroth, this is the kind of confusion she has infused into our culture. Now let me show you something I found this week while I was working on this message. A mural that was recently painted, I just saw this a couple days ago. A mural that was recently painted at a Michigan middle school by one of its students, a young girl. I, I, I don't know the exact age, but I'm guessing middle school. We're talking probably 14, 15-year-old girl. I want to point out several images that she included in the mural, the more blatant ones kind of being, you know, are the children dressed in the transgendered flag, one child holding a syringe. I'm guessing it represents the COVID vaccine since she's also wearing a face mask, a girl dressed in a rainbow outfit, and several other various images that are really open to interpretation as well as mushrooms and ghosts. Now let me just point out two images there that 
uh, you, you may not see, or if you do see, and you may not know what they are. The first image is on the far left hand of the screen there. I kind of circled it in red. That is called a Hamsa hand, okay? And it is very popular in the Middle East and in North Africa, and it's prominently used in jewelry and in wall hangings. It's kind of like our dream catcher kind of thing that we see here in America. The Hamza hand is believed to protect people uh, from the evil eye. That's their, their definition is it protects them from the evil eye. Historians believe the Hamza hand first originated in ancient Carthage, which is modern-day Tanzania now. And I want you just to, to make a mental note of that name Carthage. You're going to hear that again in just a moment. So this, they, they believe that this originally uh, originated there in ancient Carthage. It was used in the worshiping of the goddess Ayana or Ishtar, or who we know the Bible refers to as Ashtaroth, the goddess of sexuality. Now the Hamzahan is also used in a lot of cultures uh, involved in witchcraft. So where even in America today, where, where we see an increase and in uprising of witchcraft, you will find the Hamzahan is, is a part of that culture. Now again, it's very, very interesting that as you trace this back, again, you begin to see um, this is used in the worship of Ashtaroth, okay? And that image is a part of that mural. The second image, a little harder to see, and it's also under red, and it is under the nurse carrying the syringe there with the face mask on at the top there, and I've also circled that in red. Now, according to the young girl, it's a demon's face. But if you look closely and you kind of blow that up, uh, you will discover not only is it a demon, but it is the face of a bull. Ring a bell? What was the image Baal would often represent himself as? The face of a bull, right? A mural with an image depicting Baal and an image depicting Ashtaroth, as well as other images that depict their presence, several of them, you know, alternative sexual choices. You've got the transgenderism, you've got the, uh, uh, the uh, LGBTQ uh, represented there, which Ashtaroth is known for. That's what she traffics in. I just find it interesting that in this one mural, we find a combination of all the things we've been talking about for these last few weeks. And I don't know what this 13, 14, 15 year old girl knows, I don't know what she understands, but she's obviously being infiltrated and influenced by someone or something. So let's turn to the Third of what Rabbi Khan describes as the third member of the Dark Trinity. Baal was the, the possessor. Ashtaroth is the enchantress. The third member Rabbi Khan calls the destroyer. Okay, again, when a demonic spirit returns to a place he once possessed and finds it empty, says he then goes and finds seven other demonic spirits more evil than himself, and they enter that place, making the state of that person, that place, worse than the first. So as this progresses, as, as each demonic entity is revealed, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. It's going to get more evil. It's going to get more wicked. It's going to get more malevolent in the way that it manifests itself. And this is certainly true uh, with the destroyer. And in the Bible, he goes by the name Molech. And he is the most mysterious of the three. Now we find his name in, in several places throughout scripture. We first find his name in Leviticus 18.21 and there Moses says, do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech. This is God speaking to Moses, speaking through Moses. Moses is giving the word of the Lord to the nation of Israel and Moloch is described in the Hebrew as the chief deity of the Ammonites. This was, this was the, 
the, the top dog uh, that the Ammonites worshipped in the demonic realm. We also see him mentioned in several other places in the Bible. First King chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart. These are his his pagan wives, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God as his father David had been. And so there was a time where Solomon worshiped and served the God of the Bible alone, solely, faithfully alone. And then as he married these pagan women, they began to turn his heart slowly, subtly, gradually, more and more to worshiping and serving the pagan gods. And that's what is being talked about here. Solomon worshiped Ashtaroth and Molech. So now, now we see, you know, we see Baal. Whenever we find Baal, we'll, we'll, we'll quickly, shortly find Ashtaroth. When we find Ashtaroth, the, the next manifestation is going to be Molech. And we see that in the scriptures. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, Solomon even built a pagan shrine. This is how committed he was to this. For Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Second King 23.10 says, Then King Josiah defiled the altar of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Himon. I'm going to talk more about that this morning. So no one could ever again use it to sacrifice a son or daughter in the fire as an offering to Molech. Jeremiah 32 verse 35 says, they, the nation of Israel, have built pagan shrines to Baal in the valley of Ben-Himon, and there they sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. So again, where, where you see one, you'll eventually kind of start to gradually see the others. So as Christy would say, this is where you want to begin to connect the dots, okay? And we see that in the American American culture, right? We kind of see where Baal comes on the scene, separating the people of God from the word of God. Ashtaroth comes in and, and kind of begins to infiltrate and, and to really pervert our sexuality. And now uh, Molech is going to come in and we're going to talk about what would that look like in the American culture. So again, Molech was associated, he was kind of a part of the darkest of sins that Israel was involved with. And this was the sacrifice of human beings, and in particular, it was the sacrifice of children, the sons and daughters. And the Bible refers to this particular act as abominable as well as a confirmation of a nation that had entirely turned away from the one true God to serving and worshiping demons. There, there's no greater uh, manifestation of that when you're starting to sacrifice your children. So what was the worship of Moloch like? One ancient Greek historian recorded this. He says, there was in their city Carthage. Where did you hear that? before. That is where the Hamza hand originated, okay? It originated in the ancient city of Carthage. So here now is a Greek historian, and he says, there was in their city, Carthage, a bronze image of Cronus, extending his hands, palms up, sloping toward the ground, so that each of the children placed thereon would just roll down and fall into a sort of gaping pit filled with fire. So ch child sacrifice was part of the rites and the worship of the pagan people and cultures that were surrounding Israel. And, and eventually, they began to influence and infiltrate uh, that into the nation of Israel as well. So when the nation of Israel would, would begin to eventually, subtly, slowly, gradually be turning away from God, one of the things that they would begin to incorporate into that turning would be there would come a point where they they were so lost, they were so deceived that they were willing to now offer and to sacrifice their children. This is both what David in Psalms 106 and Jeremiah in chapter 32 were referring to when they were talking about the history of the nation of Israel. Now, parents back then, I mean, you're, you ask yourself, man, what would ever possess, drive a parent to do something that atrocious? Well, parents back then believed that by sacrificing 
sacrificing their children to demonic gods that they could obtain the favor of that particular God they were making sacrifice to. So that they believed if this, if this God was a God of plenty, a God of you know, um, a blessing, a, a prosperity, they believed by making offerings to that particular God that they were gonna gain that particular God's favor in those particular areas of finances, of wealth, of prosperity. One ancient Greek writer summed it up this way. He said, out of reverence for the Kronos, the Phoenicians, and especially the Carthaginians, um, whenever they seek to obtain some great favor, they would vow or they would give one of their children, burning it as a sacrifice to the deity if they are especially eager to gain success. Now, one of God's prophets, Jeremiah, we also know him as the weeping prophet. And if you ever know what Jeremiah saw, whatever he heard, we would be weeping too. And one of the things that uh, happened with Jeremiah was God led Jeremiah one day to a place where, where some of Israel's greatest sins were committed. And he took Jeremiah there specifically to speak judgment against the nation of Israel. This place in the Bible was called the Valley of Hinnom. In Jeremiah 19.4, the Lord God says to Jeremiah, the people, and again, he's talking about the nation of Israel, their ancestors and the kings, we, we saw where kings were doing this in the Old Testament, the kings of Judah have abandoned me. They have made this place unrecognizable by burning incense as an offering to other gods that they hadn't heard of. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. They have built worship sites to burn their children as sacrifices to Baal. That is why the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Instead, it will be called Slaughter Valley, or what we call in America, Planned Parenthood. The Valley of Hinnom, now called Slaughter Valley, was the place that bore witness, testimony against the nation of Israel, how far they had fallen in their abandonment, their rejection of God, his word, and his ways. It now became a place filled with blood, ashes, and little bones. All the evidence of murder. The nation of Israel had come to that valley to worship and to offer sacrifices to their new God, Molech. As Jeremiah 7.31 states, they have built worship sites at Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom in order to burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices. How does a nation once so blessed by God, so prosperous, I mean, these, these people, they had the revelation of God. They, they had prophets. They had Moses. They had the very word of God on tablets. How does a nation descend to the evils and horrors done there in the valley of Hinnom? Is Israel alone in their descent to depravity? Are there other places in history where similar things have happened? Is the demon Molech being worshipped in other times, other nations, by other people? Is it just a coincidence that Baal's first step back into America in the early 1960s was through those Supreme Court decisions, again, that began, it paved the way of separating the people of God from the word of God? Is it any coincidence that that extended to the invitation and opened the door to more evil demons, namely Ashtaroth, the goddess of sexuality and perversion, who oversaw the sexual revolution of the 1970s. Folks, this happened in my lifetime. I cannot wrap my head around that. How did we go from where we were in 1960 to where we are today? This happened in my lifetime. I don't understand that. I cannot wrap my head around that. I can't, I, I just can't conceive how did this happen so quickly. 
here we are, gay marriage. Ever-expanding alphabet and perversion of the LGBTQMOUSE lifestyles. Family-friendly drag queen show. Did you ever think we would be describing drag queen shows as family-friendly events? This is how far we have fallen as a culture. And there's no pushback. So the other side just takes it as consent and approval. The mutilation of children through gender reassignment surgeries, preferred pronouns, furries, and the movement underway in our country right now to normalize pedophilia. And all of this is the work of the demon Ashtaroth. All of this and more starting in the early 60s and 70s, subtly, gradually, slowly, eventually leading the people of God from worshiping the one true God to worshiping a plethora of false gods, pagan gods, demonic gods. So we had, you know, what happened under Baal through the Supreme Court. We had what happened under Ashtaroth through the, the sexual perversion. Then on January 22nd, 1973, the Valley of Hinnom made its way into the United States in the Roe v. Wade decision of the Supreme Court where parents would be given protection, they would be given legal means to sacrifice their unborn sons and daughters. Whereas the nation of Israel would sacrifice thousands, the United States has sacrificed over 63 million babies since January of 1973. And before I go any further, let me just say again, this is where some of you may be tempted to take offense and want to push back. Let me just tell you, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us in this room have sinned multiple times against God. We have all rebelled against his word more times than we will ever recognize. Sin is sin, whether that is lying, stealing, murder, adultery, divorce, or abortion. And the Bible makes very clear the penalty of any and all sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. So folks, every one of us in this room, and I'm not just pointing out or picking on particular sins this morning, I just want you to understand, every one of us in this room, we have sinned, and every one of us is under the penalty of death because of those sins. And the good news is, is that God made a way. God made a way for us to go from those places, those acts of sin, those places of rebellion into a place of forgiveness, of eternal life, to be forgiven and to have the penalty of death completely removed. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son and he lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death. And because of the perfection of his life, the perfection of his death, he was able to offer up a sacrifice once for all. Jesus was able to take every sin ever committed throughout the entire human race and he was able to atone for it through his death upon the cross. And that, that means no matter how deep the sin, no matter how many times you've committed that sin, the blood the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ both forgives and it just wipes the slate clean. Isaiah says it, it, we may be, you know, scarlet, red as scarlet in our sins, but the blood of Jesus Christ will make us white as snow. John 3.16 goes on to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, you will not perish because of your sins, but you will have everlasting life. The next verse, verse 17, is just as important. God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Jesus is not here this morning to condemn you. He's here to forgive you. He's here to save you this morning. 
So regardless of what the sins are that you've committed, God's made a way of escape for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And Romans chapter two, verse four says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance is a good word here. We love the word repentance here because it is a manifestation of the goodness, the kindness of God. It's not his anger, it's not his wrath, it's his kindness that leads you and I, that opens that door to repentance this morning. Sadly, many people in our culture today think of abortion as a constitutional right, a personal choice between a woman and her doctor or some form of birth control. Many people in our culture do not think of abortion as murder, but it is. And God's word makes that very clear. Not only is murder, whether or not you realize it, not only is abortion murder, abortion is a sacrifice to the demonic God, Molech. And, and hang with me here, because I'm gonna use their words to prove that to you. I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna go immediately to the Bible. I'm gonna go to their words to prove to you that what I just said is true. It's not just murder, it is, it is an offering. It is a sacrifice to the God, Molech, in much the same way it was in Israel. Again, listen to how the pro-abortion crowd refers to abortion. Jeanette Paris in her book, The Sacrament of Abortion. Now, what is a sacrament? We just partook of a sacrament. A sacrament is, again, it is a sacred ritual. It is a sacred event. Much like communion, baptism, we regard those as a sacrament in the church. And here's what she says regarding abortion. She says, our culture needs new rituals as well as laws to restore abortion to its sacred dimension. In another place in the book, she writes, it is not immoral to choose abortion. It is simply another kind of morality, a pagan one. She also says, abortion is a sacrifice Abortion is a sacred act. See, to the Christian, prayer is a sacred act towards God. Worship is a sacred act towards God. Communion is a sacred act directed toward God. What does this say about regarding abortion as a sacred act? To whom is that sacred act directed to? Sarah Terzo wrote this in a recent article called Clinic Owner, Abortion is a Sacrament and Done for the Love of the Baby. Now she uses the term baby, uh, which confers personhood, okay? She says abortion is a major blessing and a sacrament in the hands of women. In 2017, Planned Parenthood teamed up with Satanists to expand their Missouri abortion business. In 2019, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam promoted allowing live babies to be left to die following a botched abortion. In 2020, Satanists confirmed that abortion is a satanic ritual. Their words, not mine. And they said that should be protected under religious freedom laws. In 20, September 2021, again, the Satanic Temple attacked the Texas abortion law, arguing that it violates their freedom to perform abortion rituals. The beginning of October, just a few weeks ago, the Satanic Temple again sued the state of Indiana over the state's abortion laws, and the state said restricting abortion violated their religious freedoms. All of this is their words, not mine. And I don't know about all of you, but this sounds like a religion to me and a religion that does not worship or serve the God of the Bible. But rather, it is a religion that worships gods they did not know, new gods that had come that their forefathers did not fear. The founder of Planned Parenthood, one of the largest abortion providers in America, Margaret Sanger, was a racist. She was a demonic woman. 
made some alarming comments regarding abortion in a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble, dated December 10th, 1939, Sanger wrote, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. That was her thrust in abortion. Let's get rid of black people. They're inferior. That was her goal. If you support Planned Parenthood, that is what you are supporting. Many studies have been done, and they find that black women, even today, have the highest rate of abortion in the country. And it is not accidental that most Planned Parenthood clinics are found in predominantly black neighborhoods. Sanger also believed that large families were detrimental to society. Here's what she wrote in her book in 1920, Women in the New Race, chapter five. It was titled, The Wickedness of Creating Large Families. Here's what she thought of large families. The most serious evil of our times is that of encouraging the bringing into the world of large families. The most immoral practice of the day is breeding too many children. The most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. If those views of Margaret Sanger are not satanic and demonic, I don't know what is. So how does God view life? What's God's perspective? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder because he's revealed it to us in his word. Let me just give you a few of those places. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 139, beginning in verse one. Oh Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. And, and again, he's talking about, about life, both the unborn and the born here. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel, when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. Your hand, you place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful. In other words, it, that kind of knowledge is mind-blowing. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the furthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day, darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate, intricate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Here he's talking about the unborn. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts concerning me, oh God. They cannot be numbered. If I count them, they outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Isn't that beautiful? That's how God sees us, his children. It's how God sees humanity. As for children, look what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 14. I'm gonna close here. He said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for to such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 18, verses three through five, he says, I say to you, he's speaking to us, unless you become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, look and see what it's there for, okay? Therefore, 
Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. How many of you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? How many of us this morning want to receive Jesus? He tells us how to do it. We don't kill life. It says, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Choose this day life or death. Choose life. That is how we humble ourselves. That is how we become great in the kingdom of God. It is how we receive Jesus. We choose life. We choose life of the unborn. We choose life of, of the born in all stages of life. That is how we become great in the kingdom of God, and it is how we receive Jesus. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. Father, again, we just uh, we thank you again, Lord, for your word. This is a hard word. It's a hard word. But I believe it's a right word, and I believe it's a word for this generation. The Father God, again, we acknowledge that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but we are battling against a demonic realm. We're, demonic, we're, we're battling against principalities. We're, we're evil, wickedness in high places this morning. Father, that's where we take the battle this morning. We don't take it to people. We take it to the enemy. And Father God, we do that by preaching and teaching the word of God here. No matter how difficult, no matter how offensive that may be, we are committed, we are dedicating to preaching and teaching the word in this church. Father, we also know, Lord, that when we choose life, when, when we vote life, when we, when we put people in positions of authority, Father, and, and we, we choose life in them to represent us in those views, Father God. It's one of the ways that we can further and expand the kingdom of God upon this earth. So Father, I pray for every elected official that's running in this country this year. Father, I pray everyone that is committed to life. Father, I pray your favor. I pray your grace. And Father, I pray that you would make a way for them to get into office, Lord, and then use them to begin again to bring laws that are pro-life across the board, not just the unborn, but pro-life policies uh, that reflect your heart. So Father, again, this morning, we, we want to be like little children. And so we humble ourselves this morning, and we acknowledge that we have sinned. And Father, again, we just thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Father, we come this morning in a place of repentance. Whatever it is that we're dealing with this morning, Father, we thank you for your kindness that you give us the opportunity out of your kindness to repent, to come into alignment with your word, with your heart this morning. So God, we wanna humble ourselves and we wanna do that in whatever area we need to do that in. And that God, when we receive little children the way that you did, we're receiving you. And we wanna do that in this church. We wanna do that in our lives. Again, we just thank you for the example that you've given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen us, lead us more and more into the conformity, into the image of your beloved son, Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.